All right, Jesse, last week's fake evil twin poisoner lady was so absurd. Who's the baddie this time? When a young pastor's beloved wife perishes in a tragic fire, the community comes together to grieve. Only later would scandalous secrets come to light that would force the authorities to take a closer look at the charismatic church leader and his potentially deadly disciples. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about married monkey businesses, hypocritical horn dogs, and love gone fatally wrong. Oh, hypocritical horn dogs is new, huh? Yeah, that's a special little Easter egg for this week. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. We also super duper appreciate all of your reviews, gang. So keep them coming. They're awesome. They're so great. Yeah, we really appreciate all of our listeners. So thank you so much. Okay, so something very exciting, Andy. What? The primary text for this episode is by none other than our, I think this is like our most used author, Greg Olson. Oh, shit. We got a new Greg Olson. I think, well, he's right up there with Ryan Green. Yeah, this is number three of Greg Olson, right? Number four, two Amish the first one, the bed hopping Black Widow, and now this is our, our fourth Greg Olson. Bitch on wheels, right? Bitch on wheels. Yes, that was that was a good good memory, good recall. Yes. So this this book is called A Twisted Faith by Greg Olson. And just like all of his work, he does not spare the nitty-gritty details. So get ready for a juicy and salacious story coming to your ear holes right now. Ear holes. <laughs> God. All right. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about holes in this, but I'm only coming to your ear holes. The morning after Christmas is usually a quiet time. Family members recovering from the indulgences of the holiday, children playing with new toys and sleeping off sugar rushes. The crisp morning air giving way to the end of the year and the exhaustion of the biggest commercial holiday on the calendar. December 26, 1997, In Bremerton, a Navy town across the Puget Sound from Seattle, Washington, was no different. The neighborhood was still sleepy at 7 a.m. as Jeff Richardson pulled in to collect his employee, a man named Tim Pitts. The quiet of the sleepy suburb was broken by a loud crackle and aggressive whooshing sound. Jeff's head turned toward the noise and saw a small brown house, its window broken and black smoke pouring from the gaping hole. Immediately, he banged on the pit's neighboring door, instructing Tim's wife, Amy, to call 911 while the two men went to the house on fire. Jeff and Tim banged on the door, screaming, hey, hey, you're on fire, until another neighbor said the young couple who lived there, a pastor named Nick Hackney, and his lovely wife, Dawn, weren't home. Still, Dawn's Dodge Neon was parked in front, so Jeff had to try to get in the house to double check. A person's life could be on the line. The old Dodge Neon. The old Dodge Neon. This is 1997. Uh Uh-huh. Prime time. Exactly. 
He kicked in the door and began to attempt to fight his way into the blazing home. Smoke scratched at his eyes and throat, and the heat was overwhelming. Amy offered him a towel soaked in water, and he wore it over his face like a shield as he pushed deeper into the home, valiantly attempting to make it to the master bedroom. But the flames were too high, the heat relentless and fierce, and he could feel the hair on his arms getting singed off. Ooh, probably doesn't smell good either. No. So self-preservation won out, and Jeff reluctantly backed out of the small house just as another window exploded, now twin columns of thick black smoke billowing into the sky. The firefighters arrived in less than 10 minutes and quickly put out the inferno. The fire seemed to have been centered in the master bedroom. As the firemen entered the charred remains of the home, they immediately got a whiff of an unmistakable scent. That of burned flesh. Ooh. The neighbors had reported that the couple had dogs. So maybe it was a dog? Tragic for sure to lose a family pet, but the alternative that Nick or Dawn had lost their life in the blaze was simply too terrible to consider. The master bedroom had been so damaged by the fire that the Hackney's bed had nearly been sucked into the floor. Oh my God. In the blackened bed lay the badly burned and twisted corpse of a young woman or child. Oh no! Mm-hmm. Dental records would later confirm that the victim of the fire had been 28-year-old Dawn. When her husband, 27-year-old Nick Hackney, returned from his hunting trip at 10 in the morning, the police were there to give him the worst news you can deliver to a loved one. Nick immediately burst into tears. For a man of faith like Nick to lose his wife in a fiery act of God the day after Jesus's birthday was just too much. It didn't seem right. It certainly wasn't fair. But it was also unthinkable that any human being could have been responsible for the blaze, not to target Sweet Dawn, who is universally beloved. The coroner and the cops all felt terribly for the young pastor who weeped piteously at the scene. The fire would eventually be ruled an accident, and the loved ones of Nick and Dawn would have to begin to put their lives back together, the loss of Dawn leaving a massive hole in their hearts. No one could possibly think it could be anything but an accident until far, far later, when secrets would be revealed that would unravel a community, a church, and several families whose faith would be shaken forevermore. It gets wild. <laughs> so... Let's go back and talk about our sweet young couple, Nick and Dawn. Oh. Nick Hackney was born in May of 1970 as a golden child to an otherwise chaotic household. As a baby, Nick suffered a near-death experience when he started to turn blue and struggle to breathe. And they didn't know what it was. It didn't seem like he was choking. Oh, my God. So Nick's parents, auto mechanic Dan and wife Sandra, rushed their baby to the hospital but as they're like on their way to the hospital, the baby's like completely not breathing at this point. So they're terrified and they're worried they're not going to make it to the hospital at this point. So Dan pulls over on the side of the road and starts just literally gets down on his knees and starts to pray. And yeah, which <laughs> in retrospect, I mean, I probably would make some different choices if I was worried that the baby wasn't going to make it. I'd do like a little CPR or something. Yeah, I don't think I would just get out of the car and get on my knees. But he did. And he said, dear God, 
Don't let him die. If you let him live, I'll give him over to you right now forever. God, you raise my son. You be his father. God, don't let this baby die. And only a moment later, the infant began to breathe normally and the blue cast disappeared from his rosy cheeks. Nick had been saved by God and it would now be God's will that Nick devote his life to serving him. Well, it was the father's will that he put on the child who was an infant. Yes, because Nick grew up hearing the story all the time about how he had been saved by God. That is some shield to cast over a little baby. Yeah. it's. I mean, personal mythologies are huge. Like the things that we tell somebody about themselves completely change the way they interact with the world, you know? Yeah, and their life. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So yes, this story would absolutely shape Nick's life in many ways. He had always felt special and chosen and that his path would be to not only walk with Christ, but to lead others through their relationship with God as a pastor. So despite this deep self-knowledge and a life plan, Nick didn't really have a happy childhood or adolescence. His mother fostered numerous children and ran a daycare. So Nick could never get the singular attention he so desperately craved because there's always just a ton of kids around, you know? He would later report that he felt like his mother never loved him and that, in fact, he believed she hated him. I don't know why. There doesn't appear to be any sort of abuse in the family. He would later comment to a female parishioner that he understood what she was going through when she revealed that she had been molested as a child because he said he also had been molested as a child. But we don't know if that was correct or if it was like a way he was relating to her, you know? Okay. You don't really like throw out molestation usually to like- Yes. So it's entirely possible. (laughs) Yeah. It's entirely possible that he was. It was not by his parents though. Okay. Yeah, so he had a he had a very complicated growing up period. He would try to be social, like he really worked very hard at being outgoing and social, but his peers found him off-putting and often shunned him. He was just a little awkward, he tried a little too hard, and he was overweight, which I think like growing up in like you know, 70s, 80s era, like that was the height of people bullying other people because of how they looked and stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So life got a little better for Nick when he followed his calling to Christ to attend Northwest College of the Assemblies of God, which is essentially a Bible college, to become a pastor. It was there that he met and wooed the woman destined to be his wife, a petite girl-next-door type named Dawn Tienhara. Dawn had been born and raised in Bremerton, the oldest and only girl of three kids born to Donald, a shipyard worker, and Diana, a homemaker. So, you know. Oh, yeah. D-D-D-D. They're going, they're going all Ds with these kids. Dawn's brothers were named Dennis and Darren, of course. Wow. Yeah. So Dawn was really, really intelligent. As a child, she was invited to the White House after she competed in the Scripps National Spelling Bee. Wow. Which is Real hard to get into. Yeah. And she would later go on to become her high school's co-valedictorian. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So she's one smart cookie, which is not to say she always had a perfect childhood. In February of 1980, her mother, Diana, left the family to move in with a man who turned out to be youngest son, Darren's actual biological father. Ooh. Yeah. So she had had an affair, had the baby. The dad thought it was his. And then afterwards, she was like, It's not actually your baby and I'm leaving you for the real father. Yikes. Did she take the son? Yeah, she took the son with 
her and she left the two other kids with the dad. However, this situation didn't last for very long after a lot of soul searching and forgiveness on Dennis's part. The couple did get back together. Do you think his name started with a D as well? The guys? <laughs> I don't, that would be a huge coincidence if he did. Dave. Affair partner Dave. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, so littlest son Darren wouldn't actually discover that he was somebody else's biological son until he was a young adult after that. They just didn't tell him. Oh, man. So Diana, even before the affair, had her own struggles with depression and anxiety, and a young Dawn would leave notes for her mother under her pillow to cheer her up. Things like, I love you. I think you're the greatest mom in the world. Like, she was just really, really sweet. Oh, yeah, she was just a bright, kind light in the family. Those that knew both Nick and Dawn thought they were something of an odd couple. Dawn was bright, witty, clearly going places. And though not objectively gorgeous, she was cute and attractive to those who knew her. Nick, meanwhile, was brash and pushy, someone who always seemed to try too hard. And even in his early 20s, Nick had a receding hairline and like a, a real dad bod situation going on. Nevertheless, he had some odd type of magnetism, and Dawn was completely head over heels for him. Yay. Yay. So Nick proposed to Dawn over Oreo cookies on the beach near her grandparents' house. Huh? Like some people have champagne. Some people have Oreo cookies. What do you mean? I guess Dawn really liked Oreos. Like they were eating Oreos when he proposed. (laughs) You look so befuddled. I think it's fairly straightforward. Maybe they just didn't drink, you know? Oh, okay. Did he, like, put the ring in the Oreo? (laughs) I don't know because you wouldn't see it. So you just, like, crunch down on it. Like, break a tooth. Break a tooth. And it's like, I'm so happy. Also, I'm in so much pain. (laughs) They wed soon after on April 20th, 1991. They moved back to Dawn's hometown of Bremerton, where Dawn got a job at a credit union and Nick fulfilled his lifelong dream of becoming a youth pastor at Christ Community Church on Bainbridge Island. Nick was appointed to the position by Pastor Bob Smith, a man who had been like a father to Nick and who had literally built the church from the ground up, bringing together the community as they hammered and lifted and eventually raised the house of worship. The church had been a dream of Pastor Bob's, who everyone called PB, and his wife Adele. So when Robert and Pamela Biley arrived at the church on Bainbridge Island, explaining that Pamela had had a prophecy that they were to serve this church and assist Pastor Bob, PB welcomed them with opened arms and hired Robert. PB was a man who believed in prophecies and prophetic dreams. From a twisted faith about Robert Biley, Greg Olson writes that Robert was an unfaltering proponent of the apostolic approach to Christianity, which sought the creation of new churches made of non-denominational congregants. Robert brought strengths, management skills, a deep understanding of the Bible, and how it should be used as a blueprint for modern lives and the ambition to make the church into something greater than it had been. Robert saw Bob Smith's church as the launching pad for a profound and ultimately world-changing movement. The way to get there was to listen very carefully to God, act upon his wishes, follow his direction, and above all, understand that being a Christian was more than just believing in the word of God. It was living it all day, every day. So intense. Robert Biley was super intense. At first, Robert taught Sunday school classes. And over time, Robert went from teaching children to offering sermons. 
He was powerful and persuasive. When he preached from the pulpit that one of the accepted tenets of the Assemblies of God Church, that every spirit-filled believer would speak in tongues, was an error, he had biblical backup at his fingertips. Robert knows better than I do, PB said to church member who wondered aloud if they were on the right track. Some members of the congregation were uncomfortable with the transfer of power. Although by the time Robert started to sermonize, he had been a part of the Christ community for years, it was still seen as PB's church. PB was a gentle and caring man. Robert seemed to try his best, but neither sympathy nor empathy appeared to be in his repertoire. Nevertheless, PB and the church board promoted him to pastor. Under Robert's leadership, the church began something called deliverance counseling, which are intense counseling sessions where the congregant would admit to their deepest, darkest secrets. And PB and Robert would pray and scream at demons to exit the afflicted church member. Oh. Uh-huh. During these sessions, the pastor would ask insanely personal questions about the congregant's sex life. Like if they had ever had a threesome or an affair or a homosexual relationship, or if they had an abortion, how many and when and why. Okay, that's so fucked. Then the most fucked thing is that they would write all of this down and keep files on every church member. I smell blackmail. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> the next note was seems like blackmail material to me. A very organized blackmail. Crazy. They had just a church basement full of files of everybody's sins. Yeah, but also, like, these people are ridiculous for following through with this. Yeah, there's no way. I thought the whole point of, like, confession was that it's private and secret and, you know, that you you speak it and there's no record of it, you know? It is, but, like, people just, like, fall so heavy into the faith world and they just think, like, even if that's not how it's supposed to be, if the pastor is telling me it is and the church is saying it is and he's the voice of God— And these people take advantage of that. It's very important in this particular case and story to recognize the position of power that the pastors had over the congregation. And how they're abusing that. Exactly. I think it's important. It really lends to the crime that ends up happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They also believed that God spoke directly to congregants and that some of the church members could foretell the future. In the spring of 1996, a rift began to grow between the followers of PB and the followers of Robert Biley. Robert, who was following some scriptural edicts, was trying to impose rules about how the congregation was allowed to dress and what they were allowed to eat. He outlawed sugar, demanding that his followers only consume high-protein foods and whole grains, demanded that they dress modestly and homeschool their children. Some of the members of the church found him to be cult-like and aggressive. Okay. Which so people are starting like to, yep. Yep. In vast contrast to Pastor Bob's kind and gentle leadership. Pastor Bob was very much like just about serving God and serving his community. And he liked to eat pizza. And like he was just like a regular old pastor, you know? Okay. Nick Hackney, brought on as a youth counselor, was occasionally stuck in the middle of the two dueling philosophies and responded by carving out his own contribution to the church and his own loyal followers as well. Despite Nick's youth, he seemed to have a touch for counseling, specifically marriage counseling, and there he began to flourish. Nick had a way of drawing out painful events and emotions out of people and allowing them to feel cleansed and renewed. 
Most of the people and couples he counseled spoke favorably about his communication style, but Robert also had a few reports that Nick was too personal and too pushy, often forcing the unwilling congregant to discuss their sex life in detail. So Robert's saying that? That's Robert who's been participating in this. He was getting reports from other congregants that were like, yeah, like I had a really great session with Nick, but all he wanted to talk about was our sex life. And I think that our biggest issue is our communication styles or the fact that we're both really stressed and he just kept bringing it back to the bedroom for some reason. Huh. But yeah, in a church that's relied on deliverance counseling and had files on everyone's deep, dark secret, it didn't immediately raise any red flags. It was just kind of like, oh, well, that's maybe his technique, you know? So Robert doesn't do anything about these initial complaints. So one couple he began counseling was Annette and Craig Anderson. Annette was 29 and Craig 38 years old, and they had three children under the age of five. So of course they had marital issues. If you have three kids under the age of five, you're stressed out and you're spread too thin. So yeah, Annette and Craig's marriage did seem to improve under Nick's tutelage, and Annette became a huge acolyte. Eventually, Craig dropped out of the sessions, and Nick and Annette would have one-on-ones. Another woman who became a fan of Nick's was Sandy Glass, a married mother of four young sons who was well-known in the church to receive prophecies from God. And then there was one last additional woman who also received numerous one-on-ones with the young pastor, and her name was Nicole Matheson. Nicole's husband had addiction and fidelity issues, and Nicole and Nick prayed together for her husband to see the light and find his way back to God and his family. Okay. So Nick was building up quite the marital counseling business, though it seemed he ministered more to the women than to the men of the flock. Do you, as a marital counselor at a church, do you get paid for that? Technically, his title was youth pastor. Yeah. So I think he got a salary in general just for all of his work and the three pastors. And I think there was one additional guy who kind of stayed out of the fray um, would just divvy up the jobs. Like, so somebody would do Sunday school, somebody would do X, Y, and Z sermon, somebody else would do administrative work. And he ended up taking up like basically the youth counseling. Like he did a special like teen session of like basically a teen sermon. And then he also decided to take on marital counseling himself. So he got just like a flat rate for it. It wasn't like he got paid like X amount of hours like a psychiatrist or like a marriage counselor outside of the church would, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that was just like kind of a bonus that the church offered. If you go to your pastor for marital counseling, it's free. Okay. So yeah, he seemed like he was like, eventually with all the marriage counseling, like he would counsel a couple, but then somehow it just end up that the woman would keep seeing him and the man wouldn't. And he did so around the clock. Like speaking of money, he made himself available 24-7, especially to these women. So Nick's phone was ringing day and night and he would spend hours on the phone with the women from the church, specifically Annette, Sandy, and Nicole. When Robert Biley's wife discovered that Nick was doing late night house calls and leaving his Stop! own wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's like going to these women's house and spending hours counseling them in person alone, alone after dark and leaving his own wife Dawn alone at home. She told him that he was committing marital abuse. Pamela said, you need to focus on Dawn. You need to comfort her. And Dawn needs to know that she's number one in your life. 
Like not these random church shows, you know, random church shows, <laughs> church shows. So Nick merely shrugged her off. Other people began to notice how extremely close Nick was beginning to get to women he was counseling as well. Church member Holly Cloven, who was really good friends with Sandy Glass, was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the amount of time the young pastor was spending with Sandy behind closed doors. Oh. She actually like went straight to the source. She finally confronted Nick about it and how it looked. Good. So this is uh, from A Twisted Faith, her account of the confrontation. So she saw him in the church office and felt strong enough to bring up her concerns. Nick treated her as if she didn't really get what was happening and what he was trying to do for Sandy, Annette, and Nicole. I know I'm spending a lot of time with them, he said, his tone surprisingly glib. I'm doing what God has told me to do, what I must do. But they're getting too close to you, Nick. It could cause problems. Nick basically rolled his eyes, his annoyance transparent. Look, Holly, these ladies need to know that God's love is forgiving and perfect and accepting of them no matter what they've done. God loves Sandy without restriction. God wants me to get this message to her. That's what I'm doing. It just doesn't look right, Holly said. Nick locked his eyes on Holly. I know you're uncomfortable with it. God wants this. God wants this even if it looks wrong. God is all powerful and he can do whatever he wants. God would never be contradictory to the Bible, she said. Nick shrugged. Even if it seemed wrong and outside the parameters of what you would expect, he can do it. He's all powerful. For a second, Holly thought Nick was talking about himself. Even if Sandy loved me like a woman loves a man, that would be all right in his eyes because she might need it right now, Nick went on. It might help her really understand the power of God's love for her. Holly had never heard such a thing in her life. Nick had corrupted God's word. Okay, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. He's banging all these women. <laughs> not at the moment. So Okay, not yet, not, not yet. Not yet. That, like, <laughs> and like, is there a, what's it called? Like unspoken thing going on right here in this conversation, yes. but not yet? Not yet. He will. I mean, he's going to make the rounds for sure. But at this moment in time, he's not banging all of them. <laughs> but he's banging maybe some just, of them. Maybe just some of them. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the timeline will be okay. revealed. He thinks that God's love should be shared through his through penis. Through his penis, sure. yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure we're clear on that and that I'm not missing anything. Yeah, no, there's, you are picking up on what, what I am putting down. Putting, putting down. <laughs> yes, exactly. <gasps> oh, oh, God. Other parishioners noticed Sandy Glass attending the teen worship and standing in the back of the room, praising Jesus and lifting her arms, never taking her eyes off of Nick, who led the service. People thought this was particularly weird because Sandy was 41 and obviously not a teenager herself. And her kids were all young and not even attending the service because they were children. Uh. So there was no reason that she should have been attending the teen worship. <laughs> and like Nick would like catch her eye and She's wink like, at her and stuff. Yeah, it was real groupy situation <laughs> going on here. So, oh my god, PB's daughter, who was a pretty like older teenage girl, like she was like in like 18, 19 year old range, began to notice how often Nick and Sandy remained behind closed doors. Nick maintained the innocence of these meetings, saying that Sandy was revealing prophecies to him. One of these prophecies, Sandy admitted, was that her husband, Jimmy, was going to die. 
Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, it's real grim. She was matter of fact about it and had, in fact, upped his life insurance just in case. Oh, what do you know? So God had, according to <laughs> this congregation, told Sandy prophecies that had come true before. Okay. For instance, God had told her that one of her sons would be three months early, but not to worry, he would survive. And she told this to people before he was born, and he turned out to actually be three months early, and he survived. I'm real skeptical about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how she would have pulled that off, but people in the congregation generally believed her prophecies. Yeah, but there are people also in the congregation, so I feel like they'll believe what they want to believe. Yes, and there could have been some, like, revisionist history about For sure. when she said that and when yeah. what was don't happening. Don't you remember me telling you? Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know if I trust that. She really did believe that God had plans for her and Nick creating a ministry together, like she was going to be like Nick's right-hand bitch, and they did not include her husband, Jimmy Glass. So one of these plans that were in Nick and Sandy's vision was that they wanted to create an idyllic Christian teen camp. And so this was kind of realized when the entire congregation went to Gormley Meadow Christian Camp for that summer. And the event ended up being a disaster for all involved except for Nick. Sandy Glass's husband, Jimmy, later referred to it as a groupie fest for Nick. Oh, no. Yeah. So Jimmy had tried to attend to improve his failing marriage. But Sandy, like, first of all, like, didn't even want him there. And he's like, no, 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 this is great. It'll be an opportunity to work on our marriage. But, like, while he was there, every single time he tried to connect with her, she would shrug him off and say that she needed to minister to Nick. And if Sandy wasn't glued to his side, Nicole or another female congregant was. And poor Dawn, Nick's wife, ended up yeah. in tears because Nick made her babysit Nicole's children while he had one-on-one -on -one time with Nicole. Stop. That is so rude. That is so fucked up. And so flagrant. Like, you're going to have to babysit my potential mistress's children while I go off alone with her. And give her God through my wiener. <laughs> so, yeah. And apparently also both Sandy and Nicole were, like, angry about how much attention the other one was getting. So they were fighting and they're fighting with Nick about it. So it's impossible for the other parishioners not to notice what's going on and Nick's, like, devoted following and the fact that they're all behaving like teenagers. And again, some began reporting their gossip and concern to Robert Biley. So at this point, the power struggle with Robert Biley and Pastor Bob had gotten pretty bad. And so okay. Pastor Bob had actually just gone to Africa on a mission and kind of like took himself out of the game, which was much to the disappointment of a lot of people who preferred him over Robert Biley. But he just wasn't confrontational and he didn't want to deal with it. And he's like, maybe God is calling me towards something else. So he went to Africa and Robert just basically takes over the church at this point. So one of the people that went to Robert was Holly Cloven, who, as you recall, tried to talk directly to Nick, but was rebuffed. So now she reported to Robert her fears, telling him that people were noticing an inappropriate closeness between Sandy and Nick, and also the fact that Nick's car had been spotted at Sandy's trailer into the wee hours of the night. Okay. Mm -hmm. A little trailer sesh? A little trailer sesh. Robert agreed to have a talk with Nick, 
And though Holly doesn't know what was said when Robert confronted Nick, he definitely told Nick who had complained because Nick came to Holly to confront her about her report the next day, telling her she needed to back off and saying that God had asked him to go out on a limb to show love to people that weren't getting it in other ways, in a way that they could understand it. Oh, oh, my God. I know. He's not even really being coy. No, but he doesn't have to be because he is God. Yep. Sometimes, he said, that might mean not doing things the prim and proper way to make sure people get what they need. You really need to back off, Holly. You're just jealous that Sandy is giving all of her attention to me and not you. All this time, she's been trying to be just like you, and she needs to be her own person. Let her be who she is. You've been overshadowing her. Holly at this point is having a really hard time in the church in general because apparently they got kind of shunned because, well, Robert Biley's children were at their house for like a play date. Apparently the children got their hands on Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Okay. And watched the movie. And when Pamela Biley found out that her kids had watched such a terrible movie that was against God, like she like shunned. Holly Cloven and her kids, and it became like this big deal in the church that they watched a Jim Carrey movie. Oh my God. All I can think about is the scene when they're banging and it's like a wimbo way, a wimbo way, a wimbo way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is probably not what she wanted her little kids watching. <laughs> uh-uh. Totally. No. You know, I also I don't really understand who thought Nick was actually good at marital counseling because they do describe him at the beginning as like, he was gifted in this field but it seems like all of the couples he ministered to ended up breaking up so how good could he have possibly been yeah because he's banging the ladies yeah so sandy and jimmy glass separated mostly because of nick's involvement in sandy's (laughs) life so jimmy when you know sandy breaks up with him he is beside himself so he goes to nick for counseling following their separation. And he tells Nick that he's considering suicide because he's oh my so devastated. God. And Nick says, well, you got to do what you need to do. Shut up. I don't think that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would approve of that message. Wow. He basically tells him, yeah, you know, if you got to kill yourself, go ahead. Just do us a favor. He's like, do you want me to write your note for you? Yeah. What, how can I help? Do you want me to drive you to the bridge where you yeah. can jump off? <laughs> If you need a ride, let me know. I'm here for you. (laughs) So Nicole was also relying on Nick more than ever after her husband got his mistress pregnant and filed for divorce. So that one's not on Nicole. (laughs) Poor Nicole. Oh, man. And everyone says in this book that, like, Nicole had fought for this marriage so hard. Like, she really was going to counseling, trying to figure out how to get her husband to come back and love her. And like, even after their divorce, she still was like, if I pray hard enough, maybe he'll love me. So Nicole's having a hard time over here. Yeah. I don't think praying helps someone love you. No, I don't think so either. No. Unfortunately. I think you can pray for a lot of other things that could help you if you are someone who believes in faith. But like, I don't think you can pray that someone likes you. That's like, you might as well go buy a candle and light it and see if. Yeah, 100%. I think what you're talking about is like something about prayer can work for your own self-determinism. Like you can, 
you know, pray for strength and you can pray for fortitude and you can basically also just put it in the universe. Like in another word, like a more secular term is like putting what you want in the universe is like praying, you know? Yep. Yep. But there's no amount of praying or putting anything in the universe that can make anyone else do what they don't want to do. No. You can't make. What's that? What's the Bonnie Raitt song? I can't make you love me. You love me. If you won't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Poor girl. Nick confided in Annette now. So he's a little gossipy, too, because he's telling Annette, like, uh, Nicole's so needy and she's calling me all the time and she likes me a lot. Do you think that they had a lot working against them because they were Nick and Nicole? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe or maybe lot. actually, maybe that's going to solidify their relationship. You know, that D family seemed to get it back together. Yeah, maybe I mean, the family with the, the same initials stay together over here. It's like you marrying a Jesse and me marrying an Andy. Can you imagine? You know, I do I do regret that I never got to have intercourse with a Jesse because I kind of always wanted to scream out my own name. <laughs> that is the most you thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I would have I would have really gotten a kick out of that. Yeah. Oh, Missed opportunity. Maybe in man, my next life. <laughs> man. In October of 1997, whatever monkey business was going on with Sandy was apparently deepening because the two ordered special custom rings at a jewelry store. Sandy ordered a man's gold band with a Celtic-inspired design of a braided rope, while Nick bought Sandy a woman's ring with a sword design with four small gemstones, a diamond, a sapphire, an emerald, and a ruby. Now, you're probably thinking, what the what? He's a married minister, and he's buying what seemed like wedding or engagement jewelry for another woman? Well, (laughs) don't worry. Nick will soon be single, according to old Sandy Glass's prophecy. God apparently told her that Dawn was going to die on December 18th, and that she and Nick were going to be together. So she had the date wrong. She did have the date wrong. She also told her sons, this is really, really messed up. She also told her sons that their father was going to die. One weekend after the separation, one of their kids burst into tears telling Jimmy that, quote, mom and Nick told us that after you die, he's going to be our new dad. Oh, my God. I would get like a restraining order if somebody told my child that... Nathaniel and his new wife said I was going to die and she was going to be their new mother. I'd be like, oh, you are never seeing my kid again. Oh, my God. Crazy. But it's so different when it's the mom, huh? I mean, I think that also men just don't, they don't have fear the same way. They're like, what? No one's going to kill me. What? Your mom's going to kill me? What the hell? No, I can handle myself. They're a little bit more invincible. Yes, they feel a little bit more invincible. Where women are, like, highly (laughs) aware that they could be murdered at any given moment. (laughs) We're on alert. (laughs) We're raised like little bunnies to run. We know. We know that anyone is going to kill us at any given moment. We're raised that way and we've watched way too many true crime documentaries. Oh, it's true. Like, I just, I can't believe I didn't get murdered, like, 30 times when we were in Boston, like, getting drunk and, like, going home alone, you know? A miracle. Boston's a pretty safe city. It was probably the best city for you to do that in. Yeah. And also, like, when I listen to Park Predators or, like, Israel Keys stories, I think about the hundreds of solo hikes I've gone on. (laughs) And I'm like, 
hmm, also, you know, somehow remained unscathed there. Just keeping it, you're, you know, keeping it adventurous. It is. I like to live on the edge. So while Don wasn't aware that there was a celestial axe hanging over her head, she was aware that things were bad in their marriage and she was devastated. First of all, Don had always wanted to have children and Nick had been putting it off and putting it off and basically telling her like, it's not going to happen. I have to give myself over to God and to like the church and I'm not going to like raise kids with you. So that A, really sucked. But obviously things were getting much worse than even that. So Dawn was at a baby shower and she ended up breaking down and tearfully confiding in a few of the women. So here's how that conversation went according to A Twisted Faith. Dawn, what is it? I don't know, she said. There must be something, Tana pushed gently. It was only the mildest urging, but it seemed to work. Things are not so good right now, Dawn finally said. I'm overwhelmed by everything. Our finances are a mess, but mostly I'm worried about Nick. I don't think I make him happy. He's never home. He's gone all of the time. I don't know if he, if he even wants me anymore. Of course he wants you, Annette said. I'm trying to be a better wife. I know I let myself go a little, but I'm dieting. I'm going to lose this extra weight. Which, by the way, she was not heavy, even a little bit. She was a tiny little nubbin. And they even say in this book that neither Tana or Annette thought Dawn was fat, not by anyone's standards. You look great, Annette said. Nick is lucky to have a wife like you. Dawn had more to let out. I've been taking walks, exercising, trying to eat low-cal, keep the house cleaner. I'm trying to make him special dinners, you know, to show him that I love him. So Annette thought that this was really weird because, first of all, Dawn was the breadwinner and she made a lot more than Nick did. He had a very small salary as a junior pastor. Okay. And he had always described their relationship to... Annette, like he was the perfect husband, like because like Dawn worked long hours, he would clean the house and he would cook for her and he tried to keep her, make her happy. So Annette's like, wow, this sounds weird because this is not how she's portraying things. And it's different from what he's saying. And also like, it was a little weird that Dawn felt like she had to be such a perfect specimen and lose weight for him and everything because he was really out of shape. Like the fact that she thought that she had to look like some beauty standard and he was like a hot mess. And that's like, oh, this seems very lopsided. It was clear that like Dawn had been put in a position for probably many years of feeling like she was lucky to have Nick and she had to do everything to keep him. Yep. Which is so infuriating. And I think that's a dynamic that so many women have with men. I was going to say, yeah. It's just, once again, it's that power thing in home of him saying, that no one else would probably love her and he's, yeah. she needs to do A, B, and C and her feeling, especially if he's saying that he is hearing things from God or relaying the message of God. And then she's witnessing all these women falling all over themselves yep. for him and probably yep. that even going back to the mythology of him being like chosen by God and saved by God as a baby. Yeah. Yep. You know, so it doesn't matter that he looks like a, you know, a mushy sack of potatoes. Like he's still chosen by God. So that means something to her, you know? Not even sweet potatoes, like russet potatoes. Really old russet potatoes where the eyes are already coming out. Yeah, that's so gross. What are <laughs> eyes? I think that they're just what ends up becoming like the sprouts that start other potatoes. It's all about the circle of life here. But they are creepy when they're like shooting out of the potato. Yeah. So it's like him, but with another head yeah. sticking out of his belly. <laughs> Gross. I mean, 
I think that this entire podcast is Nick sucks. We can all agree on that. But December 18th came and went and miraculously Dawn survived. Sandy claimed that God spoke to her on the 19th and said, don't do anything. You're being watched. Your hands are tied. Which is like, don't do anything. What do you mean, Sandy? What is God asking you to do? So a little while later, while in church, she got another message from God. And this one was directly for Nick. So she called to tell him right after the message she said was, your hands are no longer tied. So Christmas rolls around and old Sandy is getting careless. So she apparently was really close with Jimmy's parents and that whole family. And they stayed close with her even after the separation because obviously she's raising their grandchildren. They want to stay in their kid's life, you know? Yeah. And so she went to their house to drop off some presents that she had bought for like family friends that were going to be coming and celebrating with them. And then she left. So she didn't even stay like, you know, it's like when you're like, oh, I know you're going to see this person. Can you give them a present for me? You know? Yeah. Yep. 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 So she dropped off these presents at her in-laws house and this family friend opens up Sandy's gift in front of Jimmy's parents and it ends up being a teddy bear, which is like kind of cute, but also like a really kind of weird gift between two grown women to give each other a teddy bear. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, oh, this is a cute teddy bear. And then she reads the card and is like, oh, shit, for sure this gift was not meant for me. Sandy mislabeled it because the card reads, to Nick, my big-hearted, huggable, holdable hunk of a man. I love you so very much, Sandy. How do you screw that up? How do you leave a present like that at your in-law's house when you're not even divorced? Oh, my God. Yeah, so she wasn't there. And so the woman gave the card to Jimmy's parents and was like, I don't know what you guys want to do about this. I mean, there's no mistaking Uh, what that message implies. Also, like, how are you – also, why would you give a teddy bear to a grown man? Why would you give a teddy bear to a grown man? That's so cringe. Oh, God. At least it wasn't like a weird sex toy. Yeah, there was a report like early on in the book where they were talking about how the couple seemed mismatched where a family friend stayed with Nick and Dawn for a little while and like while staying in their house found like a whole box of sex toys. And they were like, this doesn't really seem like Dawn's style. Like what does Nick make her do? (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. How do you find a box of sex toys when you're staying in someone's house? If I know anything about Nick, doesn't it seem like something he'd purposely leave around if it was an attractive woman so she could like find it and maybe be into it? Yeah. I think in a normal human being's house, you should not be able to find their sex toys. (laughs) But in a creepy, creepy, creep man way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I feel like it's really easy to not have that stuff just lying around. So that makes way more sense. (laughs) Yes, it's really easy to lock up your sex toys when there's company around. (laughs) It is. Um, But yeah, it just, it would, my theory would be that he was like leaving them laying around to be like, any interest? Does this turn you on? dropping them in there. Yeah, and then be like, like, oh, "Oh." I'm so sorry. (laughs) Excuse me. Not interested? What about this vibrating one? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Is one of you like just puts but, them on their pillow? Like it's like a guest mint, a house gift. We give them to all of our guests. It's like a turn down service, but it's like, do you want this in your butt service? 
It's a turn dick service. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Okay. Let's get back on track here. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So basically at that point, Sandy's father-in-law is like, well, I'm going to keep this note for future reference. But it was Christmas and he didn't want to bring it up then. So he just kind of like files it away. <laughs> yeah. Just keep that in the, the Sandy file. Put it with Put her church the- records. Yeah. With all her <laughs> sins. So on Christmas Day, unfortunately, Dawn is really sick. So she ends up sleeping in the car while Nick goes with her family on the ferry to visit the rest of Dawn's family in West Seattle, which is really weird. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, but she's still alive at this point. She just is not feeling well. Later on, she rallied long enough to attend a Christmas party at Pastor Bob's. And the couple stayed up until nearly midnight. At the end of the evening, Nick Lindsay, who is um, PB's daughter, and another church member named Phil Martini, which is a fun name, Phil Martini, made plans to meet early the next morning for some holiday duck hunting. So the next day, the three of them met in the still dark morning at the Hood Canal Bridge and unsuccessfully hunted until almost 9 a.m. when they quit to have breakfast at Mitzel's American Kitchen, arriving a little after nine. Both Lindsay and Phil reported that nothing seemed awry or aberrant about Nick's behavior except for one weird thing. He left almost as soon as the food arrived, like he didn't even eat it, saying he and Dawn had not yet opened their Christmas presents and he needed to get home. So he made a point to pay with his credit card and collect the receipt. Sounds like somebody's setting up an alibi over here. Just crossing all his T's. Mm-hmm. Upon arriving home, of course, Nick found his house a smoldering mess and his wife tragically deceased. So naturally, the cops wanted to know what Nick's timeline had been. So he says that Dawn had been feeling sick when they arrived home from the party, so she took some Benadryl and passed out. She woke up again at 2 in the morning to take another dose, which also I think it's weird that nobody questioned the fact that you take Benadryl when you're having an allergic reaction, not like when you're just in general feeling sick. Uh, like, don't you no. think you would take like an Advil or a Robitussin or something? I think it depends on how you're feeling. I've definitely taken Benadryl to sleep better at night when I don't feel well. Okay. Like maybe it's helping her sleep. It's not like yeah. treating the symptoms. Yeah. I think it's actually like way safer to take, I could be totally wrong with this, but I think it's safer to take Benadryl than to take Tylenol PM. Yeah, because Tylenol and Advil PM, I don't think Tylenol, but Advil PM like slows your heart rate down, whereas Benadryl just makes you a little groggy because it's an anti-allergy. I don't think you have to be having a reaction to take Benadryl. Okay, that would make more sense because I was like, that seems weird to me. Yeah. So Nick did tell the investigators that Dawn really never took medication. So the even the couple doses of Benadryl seemed to really knock her out. Yeah, that makes sense. And they theorized then... That's why she didn't wake up when the fire got started because she was so passed out. Yeah, I think you'd wake up from a fire. Yeah, for sure. That was the big question that they had had was why would a healthy, able-bodied woman stay in the house? Because it takes a little while for a fire to get going, you know? Yeah. But they also noted that there was no fire alarms in the house. So they're like, there's no fire alarm going off then. Well, that's not really to code. That is definitely not to code. And they, so they, he blamed that on renovations that they were doing to the house. Yeah, but mm, I feel like when you do renovations, you want a fire alarm more so. Like when more we than ever. Our house. Yeah. 
we yeah, they weren't connected to the wall. We just had them in the room, like mm-hmm. battery operated ones. So yeah, so there was no fire alarms and she was full of Benadryl. So that's why the police and the fire investigators think that it was possible she slept through the blaze because she was clearly still in bed. And he said that he had left really early in the morning, like somewhere around like 5.30, which would definitely have made him gone for the fire. So there was no suspicion of him setting it based on his timeline of events. And he was also really beside himself. Like oftentimes when we talk on the show about somebody who's potentially guilty, they are acting weird or they're acting like they don't care or they're acting like really dramatically. Like it sounds like Nick actually hit the perfect pitch of upset and sad and asking the right questions. And like, he didn't screw up at all. I mean, he was on like, I was gonna say he was on fire. Oh, God. Jesse. That was a bad turn of phrase. I did not intend that, guys. Brutal. Woof. Woof. Anyway, he did a great job convincing everybody around him that he was truly devastated by this. So despite the fact that the fire investigators found a few small propane canisters in their bedroom, they ruled it an accident. Excuse me? Yep. You heard me right. Nick told the police that the propane had been a Christmas gift from Dawn. That he had used these mini propane canisters when, first of all, they had a yurt. So he would use it to heat the yurt. And then he also used them if he was going on extended like camping or hunting trips. And that because she had just given them to him, that's why they were in the bedroom. I don't Hmm. know a single person that would even... Even for one night, keep propane canisters in their bedroom. That is so weird. Yeah, that shit goes in your shed or your garage or your mudroom or somewhere away from where you sleep. And for some reason, the cops didn't think that was weird at all. It never occurred to them, like, because that was a big part of the, obviously, the propane canisters went up when the fire went off. So, yeah, like, this is so, the keeping the propane in your bedroom is, like, right up there with, uh, Drew Peterson saying that he had a barrel of chlorine in his bedroom. That was exactly what I thought of. Yep. So uh, the police admit later on that they should have done a deeper investigation, but Nick was acting totally shocked and bereaved. He was a pastor. They believed that he was in a loving marriage. Everybody told them that they believed Dawn had a good marriage with him. I, I mean, it seems like people knew he didn't, but I think they were sticking together as a community, you know? Okay. And though Dawn did have a life insurance policy, it wasn't an extraordinary amount. In fact, she had just a month or two earlier increased her life insurance policy payout from 10 grand to 40 grand. Okay. But but when some of the church ladies were helping Nick out with the finances later, they discovered that the increase wouldn't go through until January 1st. So he would have made $40,000 if she had died after January 1st, but instead he only got $10,000. She also, I guess, had something like $40,000 in other death benefits, like through her job, I think. So he was still, you know, getting some money, but if altogether he's only getting 50 grand total from her death, that doesn't seem like an amount to kill over. When we've seen people who have like $750,000 policies, multi-million dollar policies, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like yeah. that that amount of money is kind of normal. It, it makes sense for the amount of money they both bring in. It, it was, doesn't seem like that is the motive for him though. Yeah, of course not. He's got a motive in his pants is what he's got. 
So the fire investigators concluded that the space heater caught some nearby Christmas wrapping paper on fire. And then when the mini propane canisters went up, it created a flash fire immediately engulfing Dawn in flames and killing her. Wow. Yeah. So they said it happened real fast. So another reason why she probably wouldn't have had time by the time she would have realized it was just the propane canisters went up and it was over, you know? Yeah. So immediately Nick's behavior is weird. Like he acted perfectly for the authorities. But all of the congregants noticed that he was being very bizarre at Don's funeral. He was acting like it was like a wedding. Like he's smiling. He's greeting people. He's hugging all the women a little too long. And he even kissed a couple of the women on the mouth. What? Yeah. So despite his act of grief, he didn't even provide a headstone for Don's grave after the funeral. And everybody knew he got some insurance money as well as there was like the insurance from the fire because he had you know homeowners insurance yeah so why wouldn't he pay for a headstone diana don's mother brought it up for months and months but the grave just lay unadorned wow that's like not cool in a community when you like are faithful too when you're faithful too and usually like go and visit them it's very meaningful yeah. to take care of their headstone you know and to not even put one on her grave well, it seems like he was just too busy trying to sleep with every single female member of his flock to honor his wife. On January 5th, he wrote an email to Lindsay Smith, Pastor Bob's daughter, who was now in Africa on a mission. And how old? She's like 18, 19, 20, something in that. Like she's like old enough that she's over the age, but she's still very young. And he's 27. He told her, so this is... January 5th, his wife died tragically on December 26th, that God was putting her in front of him and that he was falling in love with her. Already he's starting this shit. And Lindsay began to believe that God wanted her to be Nick's new wife as well. She had known him her whole life. Her father loved him. He is a pastor at the church she like grew up in and believes in. She's like, maybe this is supposed to be God's way. Like this would fit with our lifestyle and, and who I am. And she really liked Nick. So the two began to exchange increasingly romantic and sexual emails, even ultimately engaging in phone sex. Is that God-like? I don't think so. I don't think that's what God wants. Doesn't God just want very... us to make babies? So why would he want us to have phone sex? I don't think that's very God-like. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have a baby through phone sex. No, you cannot. Back in the USA, Nick was still working all the angles with other women as well. On January 9th, only two weeks after his wife's untimely demise, Nick successfully seduced Nicole into having sex with him. Whoa. Yeah. She immediately felt terrible and that it had been too soon after Dawn's death. But he told her that God had given him grace and that it was all right that she comfort him in his grief. She was doing God's work. God's work. God's work is a blowjob, apparently. He was also dropping hints to other women in the congregation. When a woman comforted him about his loss, he replied, what I really miss is having sex with her, suggesting oh. that there was a void in that part of his life that needed to be filled. That's like casually being like, I really missed her lasagna. <laughs> yeah, and you're just like, what I really miss is having sex with her. And then he would like, weirdly bragged to people that he was really good at oral sex. He'd be like, oh, you know, that really bonded us. You know, what I love to do as a husband, 
was give Dawn oral sex every night. Like that was my gift to her. And people were like, this is weird, dude. Why are you telling me that? We're talking about like, I'm trying to tell you that I'm thinking of her and how sweet she was. And you're like putting this image in my head, you know? So they did think it was weird. They were like, yes, people for the most part thought this was weird. They thought that he was grieving in a weird way. I definitely think they're still giving him a lot of latitude at this point, but people's little antennas are going off. Okay. He's also just doing this to the women. Like, you know, he's not like being creepy in front of the guys, you know? Yeah. With Annette Anderson, he was even more direct. Annette visited him at the Smith's house where he was staying while his house was being repaired. And he said, I want to run you upstairs and make mad, passionate love with you right now. What would you think of that, Annette? So she was surprised, but not shocked. Nick had always been flirtatious with her, and she believed that people work through grief differently. So she's like still sees him after this, but she's like, oh, that was kind of weird. Yeah. That time she she totally shut him down. She was like, Nick, that's really inappropriate. And she left. But (laughs) he like started working on her hard. And less than a month after Dawn's death, Nick finally got what he wanted. According to Annette, who reported this to Greg Olson, it went down like this. Oh, God. He said to her, you're the first thought I have when I wake up in the morning and the last thought I have when I lie down at night. He paused as if to gauge how far he could go with her. I don't know what it is, but I don't want to fight it. You know, I think God is directing this. It has to be God. How else could it be that someone like you would want someone like me? I know that I should be grieving for Dawn, but I can't even get there. All I can think about is you. Wow. A real poet. Gives me <laughs> I, I know. The creepy GBs. Yeah. <laughs> and that was unsure how to respond, but it didn't matter. The conversation was over. I want you to go out into the hall and wait for me. I'll be there in a minute. His manner was direct. Her heart raced and a sense of foreboding seized her. She was scared, but sure of her love for this broken man who needed her. In the hallway outside of Pastor Bob's office, Nick put his hands on her, his body against hers. He told her what to do, what he wanted. She did not resist as he whispered in her ear, God wants this. Wow. Oh, God. So terrible in so many ways. (laughs) So many ways. When it was over, when Nick had gotten what he wanted and that had given up a part of herself for reasons she couldn't even comprehend, he told her to go home. And she's married too, right? Well, she's too, married. She, yeah. yeah, she's married and she has three kids. And originally her and her husband went to Nick for marital counseling. Wow. So to thought. use their problems against them like that, to use God as a way to get your dick wet. I mean, he is disgusting. Yeah. So while he's attempting to get into everyone's Christly panties over here. <laughs> the- <laughs> Name this episode Christly Panties. Please. (laughs) The details of the autopsy are finally revealed. Finding no evidence of soot or carbon monoxide in Dawn's body. What? Yeah. So she had no soot or carbon monoxide in her lungs when they did the autopsy. Seems really weird. So they are thinking it's completely an accident. So they say she must have suffered something called a laryngeospasm. Which essentially, due to the flash fire, it closed up her throat protectively. And essentially, her own body had a spasm that asphyxiated her before she could breathe in the smoke, is what they were saying. Is that a thing? 
I mean, apparently it is. I've never heard of it before. They also determined that she had 10 times the normal dose of Benadryl in her system. Oh. So that's more than just a couple doses, like he said. So the usually, going back to the laryngeospasm, that whole lack of smoke in her lungs would indicate that she was killed before the fire started. That's how, like, when they find burned bodies in flames, they do determine if somebody was killed before the fire started because they don't yep. have any smoke in their lungs. Yep. But it's so crazy. They just really did not believe Nick was a suspect. They didn't think it was possible and they didn't know anyone else that would want to kill Dawn. So they were like kind of bending over backwards to make it make sense as an accident, you know? Did no one know that he was sleeping with all these women? No one knew. Absolutely okay. no one knew. Okay. Okay. I think that also... The people in the church felt like he was handsy and forward and like a little inappropriate. I don't think that they actually believed he was crossing a line. Like a lot of the concerns was this doesn't look right. This is setting a bad example. Like this could create problems down the line. They weren't out and out accusing him of sleeping with these women, you know? Okay. I think that they also thought that the women involved were good Christians as well. So they're like, it kind of went beyond their belief that both of these people who are highly religious would both partake in that sort of affair, you know? And over and over again. With, and yeah. over and over again. So it's like, yeah. as much as there was like whispers and gossip, I don't know if they, they really believed it was going on, you know? This guy, Nick, he could not have gotten luckier with this investigation. I mean, every step of the way, it was like somebody was looking out for him because they were just turning against him all the time, being like, this is an accident. You know who was? God. Yeah. So he's getting lucky and he's getting luckier in more ways than just that. He would be actively sleeping with one of the women and then share the names of the other woman he was seeing and say, oh, so-and-so wants me. So-and-so said this to me. He even told Annette Anderson that he sometimes thinks Dawn died so he could be free to show women just how beautiful they are. What? That God wants him to share his gift with women who need love. Wow. Mm -hmm. He also told Annette that Sandy Glass had prophesied that Annette should share physical love with Nick, that it was in God's plan. So Annette was ashamed and guilt-ridden and reached out to Nick to counsel her through her infidelity. So she's turning to her spiritual leader to counsel her in God's plan and morality, and he's just utterly abusing his authority by telling her God wants her to have sex with him and cheat on her husband and that this other church member has prophesied it and she believes in Sandy Glass's prophecy. So she's like, I guess this is just what God wants. And Sandy knows that he's sleeping with all these other people? Yes. And that's another thing that Annette thinks is like really weird, like that Sandy knows about this, but it actually works in his favor because Annette is starting to feel really stressed out and she's feeling really guilty. And so she's trying to call Nick more than usual to be like, I really want to know how this is God's plan. I really want to know like how I can feel good about this because I feel really bad, you know? Yeah. I need counseling. And he's like dating all these women and doing whatever he's doing. So he doesn't have the same amount of time just to counsel her anymore. So he actually foists her off on Sandy and is like, 
look, Sandy knows about everything about us, which she's like, hey, red flag. Why are you telling this other woman in the church our really private, really deep secret business, you know? And he's like, she's like my co-counselor. Basically, anything that you want to say to me, you could say to Sandy and she's going to help you through it. Oh, my God. So Annette, of course, thought this was strange, but she was so stressed out about this. She just was looking to unburden herself to anyone, you know? So she starts to confide in Sandy, confessing every dark and dirty detail about their relationship. And in what is surely Nick's absolute grossest conquest, he even slept with Dawn's mother, Diana. You get the fuck out of here. What? Yep. Nick convinced Diana that she was helping him grieve as Diana was the closest thing to Dawn he could ever have on Earth. And that no one on the planet grieved for Dawn the way her husband and mother did. So it was only natural that the two would comfort each other that way. Wow. Oh, it's... That's like, there's like some things that are like, ooh, scandalous. That's so wild. Then there's some that are just straight up trash, gross. <laughs> like you're not like, ooh, scandal. You're like, oh, I feel like, how? like dirty on the inside. How did both of these people think it was okay to report this? Well, that's what also leads me to believe that there was way more. I mean, there was there was more suggestions of women in the book. But I mean, honestly, we're already dealing with so many affairs that I didn't want to complicate it more. But I also do believe that he was really trying. There were so many women who reported him hitting on them, but like they turned him down that I'm sure there was more sex partners that just were too ashamed to come forward. You know, these are just the yeah. people that admitted to it. Yeah, but like those two people, like it's crazy that Don's mother admitted it. Yes, I think that there was a certain feeling though that they wanted to tell the full story of how manipulative he was, you know, that he was able to do this to these women that had a lot of faith and were like otherwise, you know, very moral. But yeah, it was really gross. He even like took Diana back to their house to have sex with her. The burnt down house? Yeah, after it was repaired. It was like he wanted to go in the same like bedroom that her daughter had died in. And she was like, Nick, I can't be here. This is where Dawn died. And so they went out back to the yurt and had sex. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So she was hesitant about it. She absolutely was. Yeah. And, and I think I think in that specific occasion, it only happened once. They had, like, made out before. But that I think that they, they only had sex once. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that was definitely, that's the, the cherry on the scumbag Sunday right there. Meanwhile, the politics at the church raged on. Robert Biley wanted Nick out of church leadership due to the numerous reports of inappropriate behavior, but Pastor Bob wouldn't hear of it. So Pastor Bob really believed that Nick was innocent. He just was like, he's going through a hard time. This is how he connects with people. Pastor Bob was like a father figure to Nick. So they were extraordinarily close. And I think that Pastor Bob was very innocent and naive and had his blinders on here, you know? You would have to be. Yeah, so eventually the infighting grew so heated that Pastor Bob and Nick left to begin their own congregation. 
Robert Biley was happy to see them go, but the congregants were torn. Those that stayed with the Bileys believed that Pastor Bob had lost his way if he was defending Nick's behavior, which is a very valid point. Some even believed that demons or the devil might be involved. One congregant said about the ordeal, you know why there's so many scandals involving churches? Satan likes to embarrass Christians where it counts the most, at home, in God's house. That's an interesting theory. Yeah. So Robert Biley was also suspicious that Nick's evil doing was not limited to sexually preying upon his flock. He was beginning to become convinced that Nick had killed Dawn when a new member of the Christ Community Church told Robert that he was a police officer. Robert asked him to look into Dawn's suspicious death. The officer wrote up a report, but the matter wouldn't be fully investigated for months. Huh. Nick is over here living <laughs> his best life, however, juggling all these women and even taking a mission trip to Tanzania where he laid on beaches with Lindsay Smith. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, he went to Tanzania and he went to some other places. So if there's like not a beach actually in Tanzania, don't at me, guys. It was just mentioned during his entire trip. I don't actually know if there's a beach in Tanzania. But yeah, he was having a real good time. But while he was in Africa, he sees Lindsay and he admits to her that God has revealed that the two of them are not supposed to be married. In fact, oh, no, he's supposed to marry another. God was like, sorry, I done fucked up. I told you you're supposed to marry Lindsay, but you're not even a little bit. Sorry. No. So and now sorry. that you banged her, it's, yep. you know, just yep. move on to the next one. Exactly. And so Lindsay was devastated, completely heartbroken. And she did suspect by the way he was talking about the other women that he was going to marry Nicole. She was correct, as while well, Nick is in Africa, he writes kind of like a Dear John-style email to both Sandy and Annette. Upon his return, Nick confirms that he will be seriously dating Nicole. Like, So he tells this to Annette, like, hey, basically he made all of these women feel like if they were out of their marriage, then they would be the one, essentially. Okay. And now Sandy's out. I mean, she's separated. She's getting a divorce. And Annette still wasn't, she never really like got into this that much. Like, I feel like she definitely got tricked by the whole, like, this is God's will thing more than actually wanted to leave her husband. But still, he switched the conversation to being like, I'm totally in love with you. God wants this. God wants us to be together. To actually, I'm dating Nicole and God wants me to be with her. But he says it's still cool if we sleep together. Hmm. Yeah. So Annette's really confused by this. Like, she doesn't really know how to feel at this point but for sandy this revelation was way worse this was really crushing to her worldview she had believed nick when he said god wanted them to be together and they had made promises remember they had bought those rings yeah and now dawn is dead and nick doesn't even want to be with her and unlike annette where he got kind of like left the door open for them continuing to sleep together. He doesn't even want to sleep with Sandy anymore. He's just like, we're done with that portion of our relationship. And she left Jimmy, right? And she left Jimmy. I mean, she's yeah. like free, single. He, His wife is dead. There's no reason that he should be acting like this. He promised her and God promised her that they were going to be together, you know? So she's feeling all sorts of ways. God promises, you know? Yep. Both Annette and Sandy began Christian counseling to sort through their complicated feelings. There's a center where they go see like a therapist or a psychologist who especially practices in Christian faith. 
So they both end up seeing the same counselor. And this is where they begin to sort through their complicated feelings about Nick. And this counselor helps Annette especially to see that what Nick did was wrong. Okay, I was just going to say, does this counselor not? So he still can't report what's going on because these are consensual events between adults. So legally, Nick isn't doing anything wrong. But he's abusing his power of the church. Yes, but for whatever reason, and especially because the women don't want other people to know, the women aren't going forward. They're just talking to a therapist. He has, you know, privileged communications. It's You don't have to report anything if it's not a crime, you know? Like, there's no mandatory reporting in this situation. Okay, okay. But he does counsel both women to try to understand that they're being victimized, that this is not what God wants, you know? So he he knows that, like, Nick is sleeping with both of these women and that he's wrong. And he is, like, helping them to discover this as well. So with this new strength and with the counseling, Annette decides to fully break it off with Nick for good. And in order to do that, she writes down this list of things that she's going to read to him and she makes him come over to her house. And he like kind of knows like it's ending. Plus he's like really moving on with Nicole. So he doesn't even really like want to come over because he knows what she's going to say. But she forces him to come over so that she can end it the way she wants to. And it's really good. Like it's kind of empowering. Like what she says to him is like, I want you to know what you have taken away from me and how you have negatively impacted my life. And she reads to him this list that I'm going to read to you. She says, one, you took away my ability to have honest relationships with people. Two, you coerced me to follow you and have sex with you without giving me enough information to make an informed choice. Okay. Three, you exploited my faith in God and my belief in you. Check, check, check. Yeah. Four, you stole the innocence from my marriage and my family. Five, you lied to me. You didn't need me for love and comfort after Dawn died. You had other people available for you. Six, you took away my ability to walk into church and feel like it's a safe place. And seven, you ruined my friendship with Nicole. Because they had been really good friends before all this happened. Apparently, Nick, like, fell into a toddler tantrum and was, like, crying. And was like, I know, I know, I'm so sorry. And she was just like, you are pathetic and I can't believe I believed anything coming out of your mouth you know he just puts on this whole display of like fake remorse and she's just grossed out by him you know okay so in the absence of Annette Sandy and Lindsay Nick then made it official by proposing to Nicole oh my god she joyfully accepted and the two began to plan a wedding by now it had been just about two years since Dawn died so the timing to other people's didn't look that inappropriate at this point, you know? Yeah. Things were looking up for Nick. The messy affairs were behind him. He could commit himself to Nicole. The new church was going great. And he had started a Christian video production company with Pastor Bob's son-in-law. I mean, not to mention that if he was involved with his wife's death, not that I'm saying he was, he had literally gotten away with murder. Yeah. So things were not looking so great for Annette, who had lost a cripe ton of weight, was chain smoking and having anxiety attacks because she had so much guilt about the situation. Oh, my God. Yeah, she was mentally unwell about what she did. Like, it basically was like she had betrayed her husband. She had betrayed her own faith. And she felt like the church, which had once been her sanctuary, was now this cause of stress, resentment, and even sick, twisted jealousy because... 
she was very heavily involved in the church. And so any church event or anything that she participated in, there was Nick and Nicole like acting like the perfect couple and like she's waving her engagement around and they're like telling everyone how Christ brought them together after Dawn died. And Annette's like, wait, I know what dirt you were doing. This is gross. But yeah. she didn't want to admit what she had done. So she's not going to tell anyone. So it's all like in her face all the time. And she's stressed out about lying to her husband for all that time that it finally just completely got to her when her husband Craig suggested a fresh start in Portland, Oregon. She jumped at the chance. So like they're getting the hell out of Dodge now, which is good. Good. Nick, of course, begged Annette to indulge him in one last time. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Well, he's engaged to another woman, of course. And this time she was like, you've got to be kidding me. Absolutely not. You've ruined my life. I'm not sleeping with you right now. Like, you can't trick me into believing that this is for God's purpose anymore. Yeah. So she goes back up to Portland. And apparently there was another church member who had left and moved to Portland as well. So while she's there, they reconnect. And she just needs to get this off her chest. And she admits to this woman what has been going on. And that woman is very supportive. She's like, I knew something was happening. You were way too close to him. This is not your fault. Like, you know, God didn't want this. You know that he tricked you, right? And she was like, yes. And so the woman's like, the only way though that you are going to move forward is that you have to tell your husband because it's burdening you. I was just going to ask if she had told him. Yeah, so she hadn't told him yet. So this woman's like, you have to tell Craig It'll make her feel better. It will. She doesn't feel like it's going to, but it will, you know? Yeah. So around the same time, Sandy Glass came to visit and she revealed a bombshell to Annette. She too had been sleeping with Nick and had been even prior to Dawn's death. So we are not surprised, of course. No, But no. Annette was totally shocked because the entire, like, Months and months had been going on where Annette was pouring out her guts about this affair with Nick. And Sandy had never once, like, said, oh, yeah, me too. Or, yes, it happened with me. She had never revealed it. So it felt like this huge betrayal that, like, I have been opening up my heart and telling you how I feel so guilty about this. And you never once revealed that this also happened to you. That would have changed Annette's feeling about Nick. He was making her feel like, you're the only one who can help me. I only want to be with you. God has ordained you to be the person to help me through this. Yeah. She knew he was also sleeping with Sandy. She wouldn't have ever participated in this. So she feels like she was slapped and she does eventually forgive Sandy, but their relationship is on rocky ground from then on. Okay. So life continued to move forward with Annette and she became pregnant with their fourth child. Oh my God. Yeah. And Annette's really, really excited about this. She feels like... They moved away for a fresh start. A baby is just like the literal embodiment of a fresh start. And she thinks that the child is like a gift from God and a sign that they are going to be renewed and that they need to work on their marriage. But she's devastated when she goes to the doctor and finds out that the due date is May 20th, which happens to be Nick's birthday. <laughs> some crazy karmic shit you're trying to move forward and your yeah. new baby with your husband is going to be on your lover's birthday yeah i mean even more than that it just so happened that nick and nicole had set their wedding date for the same day may 20th for his 2001. birthday yes i was like who does that what kind of 
narcissist gets married on their birthday. Totally, totally. You know, some listeners like, wait, guys, okay. So I got married on my birthday, but it was like the only date in June. Like, don't judge me. So we're not judging you specifically. We're judging this asshole, I promise. Just him. (laughs) So Annette felt like she couldn't give birth while her secret tore her apart. And especially with this whole like birthday due date thing, it was like such a sign she had to tell her husband. So she finally confessed the affair to Craig. She also included the fact that he had also had an affair with Sandy while Dawn was still alive. So Craig is beyond pissed. Like he's upset with his wife for sure, but he sees the bigger picture and he's really upset about the abuse of power. Yeah. And he also sees that it's serial on Nick's side, but not his wife's side. Like Annette wasn't going out and having a million affairs. Nick was obviously the one who's starting this, you know? Yeah. It doesn't make it better. Like, I think that, like, yes, he abused his power and he had a sway over these women, but, like, ultimately they should have known better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But still, he does see the greater picture, which is that Nick, you know, did this to them. So he's, like, calls PB and he's like, Pastor Bob, I'm I'm going to come and I'm having a talk with you about Nick and what he's been doing. And we need to have a very serious conversation. So Pastor Bob is like, huh, okay, well, I'm going to call Nick and try to get ahead of this. He's like, hey, Craig Anderson is coming and he says he wants to talk about your behavior, specifically your behavior with women in the congregation. Do you have anything you want to tell me, Nick? And so Nick at that point, he like kind of tries to weasel out of it for a little bit and PB pushes on him and he finally admits to having relationships with Nicole and Annette directly after Dawn's death. He does not admit to anything before Dawn died. Yeah. Okay. So PB is frustrated and he warns Nick that there will have to be some sort of disciplinarian action. The next day, he's embarrassed to discover that Nick also had an affair with Sandy prior to being widowed. Craig and some of the other congregates demand Nick's expulsion. And so actually the Christian counselor guy who counseled Sandy and Annette got involved in this conversation. And this is when he was able to report to Pastor Bob, like, look, this is what's going on in your church. And like, kind of my hands were tied for a while as far as how much I could tell you. But now Annette and Craig want me to share with you what I know. So he corroborated everything they were saying. So troubled by these reports, Pastor Bob gets out the church phone book and he begins to make some difficult calls. So he literally like goes through the list and starts calling all of the parishioners. And he says, at any time since Dawn's death or before Dawn's death, did Pastor Nick do anything that you felt was inappropriate or made you feel extremely uncomfortable? All the voices on the other end of the line were female, of course, and all with only one sole exception answered in the affirmative. Yikes. So they said things like whenever their husbands weren't around or when they tried to do a counseling session that he would touch their breast to put his head on their breast. He would compliment their appearance or say how sexy they were. He would mention his own sex life with his wife and try to get them to talk about what they liked in bed. So PB was completely caught off guard. He felt foolish that he had been so blind He felt really guilty that he had put his congregation at risk because he was the one who kept defending Nick. And he said he could even feel the resistance and skepticism. Like when he's trying to get the answers about Nick's behavior, he said like kind of like the women were like, 
why should we trust you after this long? For so long, we were trying to like tell you something was wrong and you were defending him. So like, why should I even be honest with you right now? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So PB asked God how he could have been so oblivious to Nick's deception. The answer came to him that a spirit was involved in the scenario, a specter of evil, a spirit from the dark side. Mm-hmm. So after praying on it, PB makes the difficult decision to kick Nick out of the church. It's like, Thank yeah, God, duh. finally, finally. So by this point, Sandy Glass has moved on with a new boyfriend. He was an old high school flame who had come back into her life. The guy's name was Scott. So Sandy confesses that she had had an affair with Nick when they first get together. But that was not the worst thing that Nick had done. Not by a long shot. She told Scott about her prophecy, how Nick had called her the morning of December 26th in the early morning hours from the car and said, I did it. So at the same time, weirdly, her call waiting goes off and she's kind of in shock. So she switches over and it was somebody about some church matter. And then when she switches back on to Nick, she goes, wait a minute, what the hell did you just say? Can you clarify? And he says, it's done. And then he gets off the phone. Later, he would confess the whole truth like a couple weeks after this. And he told her that after overdosing Dawn with Benadryl, he held a plastic bag over her head to suffocate her. Oh, my God. After they got home from the Christmas party. Whoa. He said that Dawn could see him through the plastic and knew exactly what he was doing. Isn't that so painful to think about? The person that you trust the most in the world and you just don't know what's going on. You're woozy. That's so crazy on Christ's birthday. Yes, I know. You'd think it would be like, like, you know, got to take this day off. Like, No, he's like evil. So he then admitted to her too that he had set up the fire to look like a space heater accident, obviously. (sighs) Scott was appalled and he was still in love with Sandy. He asked her like a million times, like, did you have anything to do with this? Did you help him? She said, no, absolutely not. She only found out about it after the fact. Like she did have those prophecies, but she said that no way did she physically help Nick. Yeah, so Scott was appalled and feeling protective of Sandy, urged her to go to the police after getting an attorney, of course. Yeah. On April 10th, 2001, Sandy Glass, once Nick's closest confidant and God-sectioned paramour, now appeared to be his personal Judas as she walked into the police station to make a deal. Good. In exchange for full immunity, she tells the cops everything. So the cops go back and do a thorough investigation and they realize how badly they dropped the ball. First of all, working backwards on Nick's timeline from when Lindsay and Phil Martini actually met up with him, he 100% could have started the fire. Like he was saying like he left at like 5.30 in the morning, but it didn't even really make sense. He could have 100% left at 6.45 in plenty of time, made it to when he saw Lindsay. And it seemed like the fire started around 6.45. So he like set the fire and vamoosed, you know? Wow. Yep. They also realize, of course, why soot and carbon monoxide wasn't in Don's lungs. If the events went down as Sandy said they did, she was dead long before she would have, you know, breathed in any smoke. Oh, my God. And, of course, they didn't know about the affairs. Now that they know about the affairs, that, of course, speaks to motive. Yep. And they also, like, apparently they had perfect credit, but they didn't realize that the couple had some debts, debts that he paid off using the insurance money. So there was a lot they hadn't realized. (laughs) 
Yeah. So all of a sudden, all of the pieces come together. But without Sandy Glass coming forward, no one would have ever caught on to him, I don't think. Wow. Because there was like a, a report that that one police officer put in, submitted, but like no one looked at it. No one looked at it until like way later when they went to go see how he was investigating. They're like, oh, there's an additional report here too. So poor Annette's water broke on May 19th. And after doing the math, she realized that her baby was 100% going to be born on Nick's birthday. Oh, my God. In desperation and horror, she begged her doctor to perform a C-section to get the baby out before midnight. And the doctor did it. So the baby was born on May 19th. Oh, my God. Cut me open. Yeah, she's like, cut me open. Get this baby out of me now. Wow. Yeah, and it was not for any medical reason. Like, I mean, I think that's, it's probably good for her mental health that her doctor listened to her, but usually they don't just like do a C-section, you know? No, that's like risky and costs a lot of money. And like, that's crazy. I guess if like your patient's hysterical though and is going to lose their mind, you're like, I got to do what's better for her. Clearly she is not going to be okay with us not doing a C-section, you know? Wow. Yep. On September 12th, 2001, Nick was arrested for first degree murder. Nick and Nicole had not been married yet because when all of this stuff came out in April about all the affairs and everything, they had actually moved the wedding date to October 20th while they like figured out whether they were going to still get married. But Nicole ended up standing by her man even when he was in prison awaiting trial and throughout the trial. Oh, God, Nicole. I think Nicole makes some really bad choices. And it sounds like, too, when she's, like, in love with somebody, she'll stand by them no matter what. Like, her previous husband had cheated on her with everybody and was even, like, leaving her for his pregnant girlfriend. And she was like, I still want him back, you know? Like, she just seems like a very monogamous, like, overly loyal person, you know? Yeah, So after over a year of delays and with Sandy Glass as the star witness, a jury convicted Nick Hackney of aggravated homicide on December 26th, 2002, five years to the day that Sweet Dawn was murdered. Whoa. Right on the anniversary. To this day, Nick professes his innocence. In 2007, he won an appeal to change the aggravated aspect of his conviction. His attorneys argued that the aggravated part came from the assumption that he committed arson and that that was not substantiated at trial. The mandatory sentence for aggravated homicide was a no parole sentence. So when he won, he won that appeal, he was resentenced and given a parole date as early as 2025. No way. Yep. So Annette and Craig Anderson worked on their marriage and they survived this horrible chapter in their lives. They live happily with their four children in Oregon. PB, yeah, briefly left the church to become an electrician. But after three years off, he returned to the ministry and as of 2010 was pastoring the New Covenant Fellowship in Port Gamble. Sandy Glass married Scott and lives with him and her children on Bainbridge Island. Nicole Matheson as of 2010, owns and operates a successful cookie and granola business out of her home in Suquamish. She and Nick were married in a prison wedding ceremony in 2006. Ooh, girl. She continues to visit him weekly at the state prison. Yeah, she's very loyal. Nick has been extremely industrious behind bars, spearheading a worm farm composting program in various prisons 
to aid in saving the environment and has even performed a TED talk about the activity. Wow. Yep. And he like compares the efforts to save like waste and and process it in a better way for the universe to mass incarceration. Like he really went for it. He's also heavily involved with other forms of activism, including organizing a January 20th, 2020 rally at his prison to end mass incarceration. So he has been like this model prisoner who builds social programs, builds environmental programs, and has become an expert in worm farming. According to Bonnie's blog of crime, his scheduled release date is May 12th, 2027. Seeing as he was booked in 2003, that would mean only a 24-year prison sentence for taking the life of his wife. For brutally murdering his wife. Wow. Oh, God. Ugh. I I don't think that's enough. Like, I get that he's doing everything right. And, like, the point of incarceration and rehabilitation is to rehabilitate criminals. And, like, it sounds like, you know, he's doing the work. He's, like, doing good things from behind bars. Still doesn't negate the fact that he killed his wife. Yeah, that doesn't sit well with me. 24 years is just not enough for a life, you know? Not for what Dawn could have done with the rest of her life, you know? She was so young. She was 28 when she died. Just barely 28, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you like this show, please, please, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you can. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, in conclusion, it is never God's will that you give someone else a blowjob. That is only your will. So don't let anyone tell you that it's God telling you that you have to give that blowjob. To go off of that, you should probably lock up or hide your sex toys when you have guests at your house unless you're a total creep. Definitely, definitely not dole them out like mints on a pillow. No, 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 no. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.